0: Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukos of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The coronavirus pandemic has affected the world at a magnitude not seen since World War II. In the U.S., we are currently facing a new surge in the spread of COVID, worse than in many other developed countries. This surge exacerbates the challenges we were already facing going into the fall. How will schools operate during the upcoming year? What should policymakers do to minimize the damage the pandemic has done to the economy? And what public health measures do we need to take between now and the discovery of a vaccine? These are all difficult questions, but we have assembled a great panel to discuss all of them. Scott Gottlieb is the former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. He's also a resident fellow here at AEI. Rick Hess is AEI's Director of Education Policy Studies. He's the author of several books, including Letters to a Young Education Reformer and Breakthrough Leadership in the Digital Age. Michael Strain is AEI's Director of Economic Policy Studies. He's the author of The American Dream is Not Dead, but Populism Could Kill It, released in February of this year. Uh, Let's start uh, with you, Rick. Um, How prepared are schools to go fully remote and online this fall? It seems like more and more every day are. Are they ready?
1: Nine of the 15 biggest school systems have said they're going fully remote uh, when school starts. Uh, Most of them are not ready. Uh, There's little reason to think that uh, anything is going to be much better than it was in the spring. How did it go in the spring? Pretty poorly. Uh, Census Bureau reported that the average student got about 3.8 to four hours of instruction a week. Parents reported feeling overwhelmed. Uh, 30% of adolescents reported feeling depressed, uh, isolated. Uh, We saw huge problems in terms of children's just general well-being. Uh, The estimates are that we saw uh, unprecedented uh, fall-offs in terms of reading and math attainment. And, uh, and that was after students had spent six months in school with their peers and getting to know their teachers. Uh, when kids show up for fourth grade or 10th grade this fall, they're gonna know their teachers and their teachers are only gonna know them uh, as pixels in an email address, uh, leading to some grave concerns about how it's actually gonna play out.
0: All right. Uh, here in Northern Virginia, uh, one of the counties they announced they were going online. They said, "We are cre- don't worry parents, we're creating a robust Online learning platform. Is that a word for Zoom? Is that just me? That's just a phrase that needs more Zoom.
1: <laughs> it would be better if that was a word for Zoom. <laughs> the, the LA agreement, for instance, that the district and the teachers union struck in the spring expressly barred the district from asking teachers to do Zoom. Uh, it prohibited the district from asking teachers to do live instruction. In fact, it barred the district from asking teachers to actually do work during the school day so that if they found it more conducive to work at three or four hours an evening, that that passed muster. Uh, Arlington, Virginia, for instance, last spring, explicitly told teachers not to teach any new content because they couldn't figure out how to def- deliver it universally or uniformly. So, yeah, uh, the reality is that a lot of these emails and notes being sent home from schools about their robust, rigorous, highly articulated online presence uh, is basically we've got some stuff online, have at it.
0: What is your best guess over the course of this year? What share of children will be going to school in person in the United States?
1: You know, hugely hard to guess. I mean, I'll be curious to hear what Scott has to say about the, you know, the path of the coronavirus during this year. It looks like we're going to start with, you know, made, we, right now we have really ugly, incomplete numbers. Maybe 20, 30% of kids are going to be showing up this fall. at least a hybrid a part-time in-person experience Um, depending on the course uh, depending on the course things take you could imagine that being over half of students by spring you could also imagine it going the other direction.
0: Scott uh, about about the path of the virus just before we uh, started the event I went and I checked one of the uh, I guess more accurate uh, model computer models and it predicted between now and November 1st Another maybe 25 million infected in this country, maybe another 75,000 fatalities. Uh, It still seems like it's pretty bad.
2: Uh, Are those numbers sort of baked in, or is there anything we can do? I think it's really hard to predict beyond really a month on any of these models uh, because there's so much uh, there's so much variability and so many things that are going to happen behaviorally that are going to impact the epidemic. I think over the next month, what we're likely to see is a slowing in the Sunbelt states, Texas, Arizona are already showing signs of slowing. Florida and, and California will probably sh- uh, show more unmistakable signs of slowing um, in terms of number of new cases. Maybe the hospitalizations will start to decline. You're seeing that already in Arizona and Texas, although the reporting on hospitalizations is very spotty right now. Now that HHS has changed the reporting requirements, a lot of states haven't been able to report accurately. But the problem is that you're gonna see other states heating up as the Sunbelt starts to cool down. So similar to what happened with New York, when you looked at the national trends as New York was coming down its epidemic curve, it looked looked like nationally, the epidemic was slowing at first and then sort of plateauing at around 20,000 infections a day. But when you backed out New York, New York was such a big initial component of the overall infection in the country that when you backed it out, you actually saw an epidemic that was accelerating around the country. But New York was declining faster than the rest of the country was heating up, and so overall it looked like there was a flat trend line. I think you're likely to see something similar here, where where we had we sort of peaked at 70,000 infections, will maybe come down to you know 45, 50,000 infections a day um, as the southern states start to decline. But what you'll see is infections picking up in other parts of the country, and so we'll never really get below. 45, 50,000 infections will kind of get down there, touch that bottom, and then make a new high, similar to what happened with the first wave of this epidemic, where we sort of got up to, you know, 45,000, 40,000 infections, came down to 20, plateaued there, and then went back up to 60. You know, we'll, we'll make new highs and, and higher lows, if you will, in terms of where we are with the infection. I think that's the risk right now. And when you look around the country, you know, Kentucky has a very big epidemic, obviously a small state, Missouri, Ohio, Illinois. Tennessee looks like they uh, have a big epidemic underway. Alabama, Louisiana, South Carolina never really got out of it. Um, obviously, smaller states; their overall contributions smaller than something like Texas and Florida and California simultaneously. But when you start to add them up, the Midwest looks like it's in trouble.
0: So I think people have asked this question: you know, why did we see? You know, as you, as you mentioned, infections—you know—they dropped down maybe around the twenty thousand. Now they're back up, and they're trying to—you know—like you know what happened uh people have you know is it just that we reopen too soon was it protest whatever the reason was it sounds like that as long as infections are that high you're just asking for another outbreak somewhere it's just it, people are just there's just too many there's too much virus out there and people are just too mobile and unless you really tamp down those numbers other flare-ups are just inevitable
2: I think that's right. I think we just have a lot of infection around the country and it's inevitable that there's going to be reseeding. as much as some states think that they can create sort of restrictions on travel in and out of the state. You're never going to really effectively uh, be able to do that. And the states that right now have brought their infection re- way down are getting receded. They just don't know it right now. And those chains of transmission are being lit and some of them will, will end up being uh, outbreaks, you know, within a month or so. You're going to start to see outbreaks emerge in some of the states that have been relatively quiescent, either had good control of this all the way through or got good control of it like, you know, Connecticut, the state I'm in. Um, so we just have too much infection around this country. And we, we don't really have a, a uniform approach, so you can't simultaneously snuff it out. We have state-led efforts, state policies that are disparate. And so you're having state-led policy efforts with regional effects in this country as opposed to, you know, more consistent approach. And I don't know you're ever gonna get to a more consistent approach at this point. I think that this is, there's some inevitability to um, the situation we're in right now, just from a sort of policy and political and practical standpoint.
0: Like those reopenings might have played a role in the virus, you know, sort of popping back up here, but it also helped the economy. Uh, and hopefully, it wasn't really,
2: road- yeah, oh. I mean, it wasn't really the okay, timing of the uh, uh, reopenings. I mean, people said we reopened too early, and and, and maybe there's some truth in that, but it w- but I think the issue was more the speed of the reopening and how you reopened. Um, you could have reopened early, mm-hmm. but reopened more deliberately and left certain things shut along a longer period of time. And so I would, I wouldn't say it was the sort of, timing of the reopening that we reopened. The manner in which we did it. Yeah, exactly. And maybe that's sort of baked in when people say, well, we reopened too early. What they really mean is we reopened too quickly. But I think we should we should tease that out when we talk about it because it's important from a policy standpoint. Like should we reopened, should we have reopened bars? No, we shouldn't have. Um, We should keep certain indoor Congress settings that are purely entertainment closed in perpetuity until we can figure out whether we have control. I mean the priority should be trying to open the schools and do other things that are more important from a social standpoint. Here in Connecticut Um, they've kept the casinos closed. Um, They just don't see a practical way to reopen those safely and not have those be a source of spread. And so you can make those decisions. It's hard on the um, venues that ultimately are um, objectified and and sort of um, carved out from the general reopening, but you do have to make those decisions and the things that are the highest risk are indoor congregate settings in confined spaces where you have a lot of mixing and the ones that probably are the most suspect are the ones that are done the indoor congress settings where you have a lot of mi- mixing, where it's done just purely for entertainment purposes of individuals is not really a, um, a sort of economic um, benefit that's being derived societally, other than to you know, the business that's operating that space. So when we decided to open the way we did, and
0: so you could say when we decided to open bars, then, we, then it was sort of automatic that a lot of school districts were gonna have some very difficult decisions to make to this fall because we are not going to just have, you know, 5,000 cases a day. We are going to have 10 times that. Many.
2: Yeah, look, I think we need to start making those hard choices and looking uh, a month or two down the road about where we think we want to be. Um, and certainly, as I said at the outset, I think you can make predictions sort of a month or six weeks out in terms of how this is going to spread. And so we we should have been more cautious about how what we reopen to try to get more runway to reopen schools. I mean, here in Connecticut, and again, I'm working with the governor, so I'm sort of close to the situation. They should be able to reopen schools for in-class learning. Um, They'll sort of give a flexible option to parents, but I think that the infection's under control. They may not be able to keep schools open. There may be a point in time where there's outbreaks and the infection picks up at 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 a pace that you want to close the schools because you're worried about children being exposed to this on a wide basis. But I think that you'll... Have that opportunity at the outset, and you know the state took a lot of steps and incurred a lot of hardship to sort of uh, earn the right to have that that optionality. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, as important as it is to open schools, I think we do need to be mindful not to let this become epidemic in children. Because um, while while I think that the clinical literature that says that this is less of a risk in kids is is right, there's a lot of studies now that sort of affirm that. Um, the, the information about whether or not kids can be conduits of spread is mixed. There, there's a lot of suggestion that when they do become symptomatic, they, they're they less likely to get infected and less likely to become symptomatic. But when they do become symptomatic, they're just as likely to transmit the virus, maybe more so because they compensate what in, in behavior, what they sort of lack in biology in terms of their ability to transmit it. So maybe they're less biologically able to transmit it, but their behavior compensates for that. You know, They're more likely to come into contact with adults and you're more likely to hug and kiss your children when they're sick. So so they can be conduits to spread when they get symptomatic. And in the question of whether or not they develop severe disease, certainly um, there's not a, a, um, a, as much evidence that they get, can get as sick uh, as adults and older adults. I mean, certainly this the morbidity skews heavily towards older adults. But remember, um, not a lot of kids have had this. If you look at the CDC's data, and I tweeted this out two days ago, and I, I might get it wrong off the top of my head. But. I think they documented 250,000, about 250,000 cases of kids developing symptomatic illness that was diagnosed. Not all of them were symptomatic, but most of them were because kids generally don't get, don't get tested unless they're symptomatic. You have to put that against um, about 11.8 million kids in 2018, 2019 were projected have symptomatic flu, probably another three, four million at least had asymptomatic flu. Um, and of that 11.8 million, that was a projection, but six point, about 6.5 million actually showed up at the doctor's office and got tested. So whatever way you want to cut it, whether you want to put the 250,000 against the 6.5 million or the 250,000 against the 11.8 million, it's an order of magnitude different in terms of the number of kids who got symptomatic flu and symptomatic COVID. And when you look at the data, um, you know, the, there's 76 pediatric fatalities with COVID. That's about the number of pediatric fatalities you see with flu. So people who say, well, this isn't serious in kids and flu is far more serious. um, Flu claimed, uh, you know, grimly claimed a small number, increment more lives in 2018, 2019 in the pediatric population, but it infected an order of magnitude more kids. I don't think we want to see what it would look like. We we should do everything we can to prevent an outcome where 11.8 million kids develop symptomatic COVID or even 6.5 million kids become symptomatic, develop symptomatic COVID. I think that you will see some uh, morbidity. And just final point on this. Uh, the one study, there's not a lot of good studies that look prospectively at the outcomes in kids. The one study that CDC cites and they have it on their website is a study of 2,100 kids in China who developed symptomatic COVID. So they actually developed symptoms, most of them did. And they showed about 5% developed severe disease that ha- that created central hypoxia. They basically needed to be hospitalized and get oxygen. And 0.6% um, developed, um, either shock or acute respiratory distress syndrome or multi, multi-organ system dysfunction. So they were in the in the ICU critically ill. Um, that's a high percentage. I mean, it's not nearly as high as you'd see in adult population, but it's still a high percentage and, and still should give us caution about, again, just making sure we reopen schools with precautions in place that, so that this doesn't become epidemic in children.
0: Mike, I want you to uh, put the uh, school reopenings in an economic context, but before you do, just briefly, How is the economy doing we had a really bad gdp uh report today for which everyone expected for the second quarter there's been some talk among economists that the v-shaped economy is uh recovery is not happening that the economy is sputtering how do you see things
3: well the the economy is in very very bad shape um today's gdp report showed the economy contracted by about one third on an annualized basis in the second quarter uh, shows just how deep and how severe the recession was. That, that represents the worst quarter of economic performance since the U.S. began keeping records uh, in the 1940s. It's, it's uh, surely the worst uh, economic performance we've seen since, uh, since the Great Depression, uh, and uh, it's, it's devastating. There's, there, there, we, we've seen nothing like it in our lifetimes. You know, the the uh, month that got the most weight in the second quarter GDP statistic is April uh, and April was was a, a terrible, terrible month. The economy in June was already considerably outperforming the second quarter average. So the economy is much better than it was at its at its low point. Uh, you know, the 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 recession probably lasted two months. Uh, the recession is 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 probably over, um, but so much damage uh, was uh, uh, inflicted in the months of March and April that even though we climbed quite a bit, uh, uh, quite quickly in the months of May and June, we're still in a very deep hole. Uh, uh, and so, you know, we're going to enter into a period this summer. We're going to continue to see rapid improvement. Uh, but it's going to take months and months and months and months and months of sustained rapid improvement until we're finally back to where we were uh, uh, in February.
0: Is there much risk of slipping back into a recession? Certainly some economists, including the folks at Moody's, have talked about that.
3: I mean, there's, there's, there's some risk of, of slipping back into a recession. You know, I think there's real risk of stepping, of, of, of having a, you know, two or three steps step forward, one step back type economy, uh, uh, you know, that, that doesn't get you uh, a recession, but it does slow the rate of progress. I mean, I think you know, my, uh, my view at this point is that we're gonna have really rapid growth in the third quarter of the year, uh, July, August, and September, uh, that we're gonna have uh, 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 solid growth in the fourth quarter of the year, and then we're gonna end calendar year 2020 in a m- much better place than we were in in the second quarter. Um, but, but, But given how bad the second quarter was, even if the second half of the year goes really, really well, it's inconceivable to me that the economy at the end of 2020 won't be in much worse shape than the economy was at the end of 2019.
0: Uh, how much of that you know, relatively upbeat forecast for the second half of the year is dependent on what happens in Congress with this uh, phase four support and stimulus package?
3: Um, you know, I, it, it it sounds like a relatively upbeat forecast, um, but really, what what drives that forecast is just how bad the economy was in March and April. You know, all of these all of these quarterly growth rates are, are relative, and so and so progress in the third quarter is measured relative to the second quarter and it doesn't take much for the economy to improve relative to the second quarter given how bad the second quarter was. So uh, while I do think we will see significant improvement in the second half of 2020 over the next, you know, 6 months or so, uh, you know that, that that shouldn't be confused for a statement that we won't we won't still be in terrible shape. I mean we're going to be in bad bad shape. Uh, for quite some time, you know, if you if you if you look at where we were in June, uh, and assume we have no economic improvement in July, August, and September relative to uh, where we were in June, we're still going to see significant growth in the third quarter relative to the second quarter. So as long as we don't actually uh, slide backward in a sustained way. We were in June. Uh, we're going to have a good, uh, a good summer, and we're going to go into the fall uh, in good shape. Um, I, you know, if Congress does even the bare minimum, which I expect they will, that, that will still be true. Having said that, we really need another uh, significant uh, uh, piece of economic recovery legislation. Uh, in order to have the kind of recovery that we should be having from uh, from where we were in the spring with the lockdowns,
0: uh, what is the trade off of having kids not go to school in person? What is the economic trade off, both as far as the li- the lifetime impact on those kids as well as the impact on their their parents as workers? Well, I think
3: it's really significant, and I and and, and I think I think as a as a society we haven't. Uh, really given this enough weight. I mean, I've been I've been surprised and disappointed uh, at the extent to which the conversation around schools really schools as if they're just daycare centers or or as if they're some sort of a weird credentialing uh, institution that doesn't actually do anything in terms of in terms of kids' intellectual uh, skill or uh, uh, social and emotional development. Um, you know, if if the schools don't open in September it's hard to understand why they would open in in January. And so if we're talking about a year of uh, uh, virtual learning, which is really, I think the school districts that are deciding not to open in September are effectively deciding uh, to be closed until, um, uh, to be closed for the entire academic year. You know, that's that's a significant uh, loss for those students. You know, kind of conventional economic uh, estimates suggest that an additional year of schooling increases uh, your wages as an adult by nine percent per year um when you factor in that there was virtual learning taking place in the spring you know you're, you're talking about lowering the wages of these kids once these kids reach adulthood by double digits by 10 percent, 12 percent, something like that uh, again according to conventional economic estimates that's going to hit lower income kids the hardest lower income kids are going to see uh, uh earning wage and income losses that are greater than that than that average estimate um and that's really significant uh, uh, that's 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 a significant significant cost to those kids it's also a a, a major uh a, a cost to the longer-term performance of the economy as a whole and that's to say nothing of what the impact is of, of having schools closed on the economy today by, by making it so hard for parents to go to work. Uh, we really, I think, should be uh, a, a closing schools as a, as a last resort. If we, if we look back on, on this episode and we see that we let bars and tattoo parlors stay open, but we didn't let kids go to school, then as a society, we will have failed to deal with this crisis in a very fundamental and profound way, right now the Washington D.C. public schools, as of as of this morning, I believe, are planning to go to school uh, to, to, to do only virtual learning. At the same time, you can still uh, eat indoors at a restaurant, and this just uh, represents a, a a complete misordering of what society's priorities should be.
0: Yeah, I want Rick to jump in, and then Scott.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think first off that <laughs> is elegantly said. Mike. Part of what's going on here is that the most uh, vocal and influential interests in education uh, have been saying, "Hey, let's put our thumb on the scale of not opening." So the teacher unions, for instance, have said, "Look, we we want schools to reopen as long as they're safe, but that's going to cost hundreds of billions. It's going to require extraordinary efforts." if there is any doubt in how we weigh this out, let's not open. Uh, You've heard the same thing from superintendents associations, parents themselves are justifiably nervous. So I think one of the things that's happened in the calculation around schools, which has not happened uh, with commercial enterprises is we have had a lot of active vocal interests raising all of the legitimate concerns and there's really not been any visible or organized or forceful push to say well wait a minute we need to think about what it means for kids to not be in school so that's that's part of that and that's part of when we think about what's going to change in the decision process in december or in march it's uh it's not clear how that is going to evolve look the, the thing to keep in mind about virtual schooling is in theory it makes a heck of a lot of sense especially as students get older the opportunity for them Uh, to connect with expertise and with mentors who aren't just the adult in their high school, the ability to access, all of this stuff makes a lot of sense in theory. Problem is, it turns out to be really hard to design virtual education well under any circumstances. Most of what districts were offering in the spring and will be rolling out in the fall is duct tape stuck together, whatever they can get their hands on with faculty who don't know what they're doing Operating under collective bargaining agreements that are highly restrictive and the things you need to do to make this work. And ter- turns out that a while virtual learning environments work really well for some learners, for lots of students, especially young students, it's the human dimension of schooling that makes it all work. Uh, they go to school and they kind of sit in class because they like to see their friends, because they like their teacher because of all of the other tissue that's wound up, that's wrapped into schools. So a real simple example of this is about a decade ago, there was an explosion in higher education of these things called MOOCs. They were offered by faculty at places like Stanford and MIT. They were free online courses where you got to watch the video and take it. This is adult learners who are choosing voluntarily to take these courses. Tens of thousands of people signed up for some of the courses taught by the leading authority in the entire world. Generally speaking, when Harvard did an evaluation of its MOOCs, about 5% of students actually completed the courses. So even for motivated, interested adult learners, the rate at which people are actually able to lock in and benefit from virtual learning is quite limited and hugely dependent on design. Now we are asking schools in a helter-skelter fashion to do this for tens of millions of kids With teachers who aren't actually trained in it and may not be comfortable um i think when we think about the educational implications for all of that happy uh happy talk that folks are going to get from their local superintendents and their local teachers i think they should be very concerned about how this plays out in practice
0: when you're talking about groups pushing for online schooling keep the schools at least partially closed where is that potential counterweight which we have not heard from, going to come from? Is it, is it a just a uh, organic parents uprising? Is it just politicians taking the lead? Who,
1: where, 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 where does that energy emerge from? It's, it's a great question. I mean, you know, President Trump obviously saw, his posters presumably saw an opening here in July when he suddenly started demanding that we send kids back to school. But in classic Trump fashion, he did this in a reckless, uh, unhinged way and was openly dismissive of the health concerns, uh, in a way presenting the folks nervous about going back to school with the perfect foil. Um, You've seen relatively few polls stand up. Uh, Governor Polis in Colorado, I think, handled this real nicely, talking very deliberately in a disciplined fashion about, look, um, we can't be scared out of doing what we need to do for kids, but we have to be cognizant of all the risks. We've seen very little of that kind of political leadership. Parents themselves are deeply split. Depending how you ask the question, it's really 50-50 between parents who want to send their kids back to school and parents who absolutely don't want to send their kids back to school. Um, So you haven't seen a lot of energy there. Uh, The advocacy and reform community is right now very caught up in questions of social justice, uh, which turn out to play out very weirdly on this. On the one hand, as Mike mentioned, the kids who are suffering most from this are the kids who are in homes where they don't have highly educated parents, where you don't have a lot of resources uh, to pay for supplemental materials, uh, that are in small homes without good learning space. These are exactly the kids on the wrong side of the opportunity gaps. But these are also parents who in many cases most nervous about sending the kids to school. So the reformers and the advocates are on the sidelines. Um, And then you've got a mass culture. You have these pods um, emerging, especially in affluent wealthy communities where parents are getting together and figuring out how to pay money to hire tutors to get their kids together. But instead of this being greeted as American ingenuity and parents e being eager to stand up and find a way for their kids, what you're generally seeing in the New York Times and the NPRs is these parents lambasted as selfish examples of everything that's wrong with privileged culture. So it's right now really hard to see where that leading edge on making sure we're being fully cognizant of what kids need is gonna come from.
2: Uh, Well, Rick (laughs) made a lot of good points. I I think that the issue of who's pushing back on um, trying to um, get schools open, I think you're seeing, first of all, I, I think you're seeing a lot of parents want schools to reopen in some fashion. I think parents are appropriately nervous about the risk of outbreaks and epidemics in the school. And I think they should be nervous about that, but I think you are seeing some organized effort among the political class, certain elements of the political class and that was touched on to try to get schools reopened um, for a variety of reasons. I think it was done, I think that push was not done in a thoughtful fashion. And I think it, it, it sort of stoked the kinds of anxieties um, that people I think legitimately should have, which is how are we gonna prevent uh, outbreaks and epidemics in the school? Because the reality is, when we reopen schools, uh, when we push to reopen schools, we should do it with um, the goal first and foremost to prevent outbreaks in the schools and prevent kids from getting infected. Um, you know, and that and and prevent teachers from getting infected. And the two goals aren't uh, in conflict with each other. I think that there's a lot you can do to create a safer environment in the school for children, even in the setting of some spread in the community. First of all, you've got to get the major epidemics under control. It's going to be hard to open schools against the backdrop of uncontrolled spread, but You know, you could, you keep the students in defined cohorts, you retrofit the HVAC systems, you try to move classes outdoors where you can, you open windows rather than run the air conditioning systems, you can have students wear masks, you certainly give proper PPE to the teachers, you can stagger the start time of the school day, you can go to hybrid models and have uh, in-class and and online learning um, to try to create more um, distance within the school. There's a lot of things you can do to create a safer environment in the school, and you know the 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 dialogue was we have to reopen schools for five days a week mandated indoor learning nine to five no hybrid model grin and bear it and that's that was the wrong approach and i think the wrong message and when you have the specter of cdc putting out guidance on how to safely reopen schools and they do you know gymnastics to avoid having to make mention of what you would do to actually close the schools if the situation arose um, that also doesn't inspire confidence And if you read that cdc guidance it, it, there's no mention of the circumstances under which you might consider closing the schools, how you would close the schools, what the threshold would be. The document literally says that in a setting of uncontrolled um, community spread of the virus or situations where the school is the source of the local epidemic, the school itself is the source of the local epidemic, it says in those circumstances you should have a discussion about whether you might consider closing the schools. That's all. I'm, I, I'm not quite quoting the document. But I think we've got to address these issues and the absence of addressing them actually is going to push more districts over the edge of closing their schools because of the uncertainty around it um, and the concerns. And so I think if we sort of took these issues head on, we, we acknowledge the fact that you know there there needs to be measures in place to protect the children, that some element of, of hybrid approaches may be appropriate in certain communities. Um, and we need to more clearly define circumstances under which you might consider closing the schools. I think we'd have a more confident uh, You know, environment in which school districts would take the risk of going forward rather than the default position would be um, to close them because of the, the pervasive uncertainty. Although I think Um, It's just an interesting piece. I I
1: think Scott's right. I agree. Um, you know, John Bailey and I rallied about two dozen former superintendents and state chiefs and Obama, Bush office holders to sketch um, a framework for thinking about these issues back in early May. And one of the things that was frustrating through May and June is rather than seeing a really disciplined effort in the education space to start figuring out how to do the things Scott was talking about, um, it it frequently felt like we were playing a a version of the Washington Monument strategy. That you had superintendents in Los Angeles and San Francisco and San Diego signing letters saying, look, we can't really figure out how to reopen until we get a promise of $200 in federal aid for schools. And so what you saw was a huge amount of energy it felt like invested not in saying, how do we make this work two days a week right now, but in saying, well, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves until the checks start showing up. So for instance, Scott mentioned the possibility of starting school earlier. We've talked over the last several months about running split school shifts. You run a nine to noon, so kids get time for the teacher. You clean the building for a couple hours. You run a two to five you run six days a week. So that's Saturday. So you can space. So there's a lot of this, but what one of the things that's happened is districts have been loath to ask employees to actually modify the terms of their collective bargaining agreements. And you've seen little indication, uh, from the teacher associations that they're open to even temporarily creating MOUs around any of the existing, uh, any existing provisions. In fact, What you've seen, for instance, was uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, along with the Boston teachers, the LA teachers, the Chicago teachers, the Milwaukee teachers, the St. Paul teachers, the Oakland teachers, have now formed a coalition which says that, look, if we wanna reopen schools, we need to raise taxes on the rich, we need to have a moratorium on evictions, we need to stop uh, charter schools and standardized testing. So one of the things that's happened is the whole question of trying to figure out how to reopen schools or even create virtual flexible learning that really works for families. Uh, flexible virtual learning has, in many cases, in the education space, gotten caught up, caught up with regular wish list agendas and power politics that have that, that, that have shifted the ball entirely from kind of the practical problem solving that Scott was sketching.
0: Scott, you mentioned the number of things that could be done to make going to school in person safer. Um, I, I'm not sure if you mentioned having the kids wear masks. I'm not sure maybe you mention everything. that. But if you did all those things and maybe wear masks, would you be comfortable having schools open? They did all those things, but the level outbreak was what we see right now in Florida and Texas and Arizona and Georgia and California. You know, pretty, pretty substantial. You
1: look,
2: know, uh, I've got, a, I mean, I've got a three-year-old and a six-year-old. Oh, I'm sure. Scott, you go ahead. No, no, no. Look, I, I think that these decisions should be made by local districts because every local district faces a different circumstance in terms of what it can do with respect to the measures I talked about. And Unfortunately, a lot of districts that are already disadvantaged have the least opportunity to implement some of the measures. And So you have students that already face disadvantages in getting access to education being the ones who are in a position where their districts can't open. So we need to, we need to try to address that. But I do think we need to leave discretion to the districts. And that's not what's happening. You're seeing states step in and saying you're opening five days a week, you know, for in-class learning, regardless. In states that have um, major epidemics underway, so if you took California right now, Southern California right now, Florida right now, parts of Texas right now, I've said all along, I think it's going to be very hard to open against the backdrop of an out-of-control epidemic. I don't see. I don't think the measures that I outlined can feasibly prevent outbreaks from happening in the schools. And so you can be one of those who says, well you know, there's been outbreaks in schools, kids will be, be fine, they can get sick, it won't, won't worsen the epidemic and the kids won't have bad outcomes. I'm not in that camp. I think that if there's outbreaks in schools, it's going to seed the community and the kids are gonna be at risk. I don't wanna see outbreaks in schools and I don't think that you can prevent that in a setting of major epidemics. I think in states that have a measure of control over their spread, and you don't have to have perfect control over your spread, but a measure of control over your spread so you don't have sustained community transmission I think there you can open the schools against the backdrop of some transmission. We're never going to get transmission down to exceedingly low levels like you've seen in some other countries where you have, you know, a handful of cases being reported a day. I mean, even New York has 500 cases a day. Um, You know, Connecticut still has 100 cases a day and it's going to probably go up. Um, But in those states, I think that there's an opportunity to open the schools in states that you know, are challenged but not out of control. I think there's an opportunity to open the schools. I think in the states where you see an out-of-control epidemic, you see a positivity rate, you know, above 10, those are gonna be very difficult circumstances. Um, You know, and even a positivity rate above five is challenging, but there's about, you know, probably 15 states right now with a positivity rate above 10, Uh, and that, those are, those are challenging circumstances for those states. Mike,
0: even in those kinds of situations, we have high positivity rates, a lot of spread do you think that the economic downsides are so significant that even those situations you schools need to reopen get the kids some masks open windows you know have class outside but but it's such an overwhelming case about the potential damage and and maybe rick can also toss at some point whether those kids could ever catch up uh that we just need to get those schools, we need to get our schools open
3: yeah, I think I, I think I am uh, would be willing to tolerate a greater degree of risk and and a greater degree of, of infection uh, than that. It sounds like like Scott would. Uh, I mean, I think there are certainly situations where you know he's he, he's, he's going to jump
2: to the Zoom. Uh,
3: I think there are certainly situations that I'm
2: just uh, saying I'm, I'm absorbing the medical device on <laughs> I don't, I don't how much infection. See, going to the point
3: that I, the point that we need the public health community to understand is that there are. Just medical advice at play here, Um, but you know I think I I, I think we need uh, I I think we need to 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 think of that as as really an extreme thing to do. Uh, Shutting down schools for a year after they were already closed for the spring semester that's a that's a very serious thing to do. You know I I don't think we should be having that conversation in isolation. I mean, you know we should all be wearing masks every day. Uh, when we when we leave our houses. And we should be doing that because doing that would help get kids back into classrooms. We should be, uh, when, when, when we're deciding whether or not bars and tattoo parlors should be open, we should be thinking about the effect that will have on, on allowing kids to go into classrooms. Shutting down schools should be one of the very last things that we shut down. Uh, and, and, and we certainly shouldn't be Shutting down schools because we don't want to issue orders about wearing masks in public, um, you know. So, so I think it's, you know, I, 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 I think a lot of people are asking, you know, how much infection would you tolerate, how much spread would you tolerate in order to keep the schools open, you know. It's, it, I, I think that is a useful question because that trade off, the trade off between. More infection and a more normal uh, uh, life is a trade-off that we should be grappling with more explicitly than we currently are. The reason not to frame the question in that way is because these, these options don't exist in a vacuum. There are a whole bunch of other things that we can and should be doing that would both reduce the spread of the virus and allow kids to go back into classrooms. Um, and, I, and I do think a root cause of the the um, uh, uh, challenge here is is a lack of appreciation for the real value that schools have for kids. It, 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 when your kid is in sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grade, school is not just daycare. You know, it's not just a mechanism to allow you to go to work. I mean, it is it is it is really doing something for your ability to function in society as an adult and, and to function in the economy
1: as an adult. And I'll I'll just say, uh, Jim that. was if i was in florida as a parent i wouldn't want the schools open um it it seems you know when you look think about frameworks and you think about conditions um it's you know it's the scaffolding scott's talking about so look there's got to be a continuum here but i think there's lots of places Uh, we were talking about northern virginia a couple moments ago where we both live Uh, it seems to me that the public health and the public health situation in northern virginia is such that it should be entirely feasible to open schools in a hybrid fashion And whether or not kids go five days a week is one question. I think it's vital to understand though how hugely important it is for kids to get into school buildings on a semi-regular basis, whether that's two days a week and that makes it feasible to socially distance and to have time to deep clean, whether that's half days. Look, the thing we've got to remember is that for huge numbers of children, especially, you know, millions of kids who are on the wrong side of the opportunity gaps this is the this is where they have stable adults in their lives this is where they have uh, friendship networks it's the human piece that actually connects them to what they're learning they actually need to know who their teacher is is something other than an occasional um you know square on a zoom screen to ask kids to show up for school and spend the fall semester or an entire year as eight-year-olds or 14-year-olds learning from somebody whom they have never actually interacted with in person is I think to be profoundly unrealistic about how kids learn and how teachers do their job.
0: Uh, and uh, Rick, on the question, can, can kids catch up if they
1: miss a considerable be brutal. amount of time? Um, we have this phenomenon called a uh, summer learning mode. Uh, one of the big reasons, uh, we said about this a lot in the early no Child Left behind years, one of the reasons that you see these huge gaps by race or by uh, income, is that kids tend to rest during the academic year, there's less spread than you would imagine. But what happens typically during the summer is kids from middle-class and affluent families uh, hold uh, or increase uh, their performance because they get to go to enrichment opportunities and they have resources. And kids from low-income families are stuck in smaller homes without enrichment opportunities and they go down. So basically what you've done is you've now created that phenomenon for six months, potentially for 15 months. Uh, What we are talking about is a massive lift to try to get the kids who are losing out here back where they need to be. Can it be done? Hypothetically, sure. With enough intensive tutoring, enough supports. Um, Are we able, uh, are we willing to fund that? Are we able to figure out how to deliver it? It's an open question. Scott, why, why are we
0: sitting here uh, with 65, 70,000 still cases a day? We're a rich country. We have an advanced medical system. We have great biotech companies. States are relatively well run. Why are we still sitting here with 60,000 plus cases a day while, while Western Europe are opening schools? They have, what, 5,000 cases a day? What explains that gap? To, to the best of your knowledge?
2: Yeah, I think that the, um, the decentralized nature of our country uh, in terms of how decisions get made at a state level and a local level rather than at a federal level, I think the individualism of this nation, um, our um, aversion to regulation, uh, you know, while those, all those elements are normally the uh, ingredients of the dynamism of this, this nation. Uh, I think it's worked against us in this setting. Uh, I think that, you know, we weren't able to implement a coordinated strategy. We weren't able to get a uh, uniform adherence to it. Um, our individualism caused splits over things like wearing of masks where there should have been, I think, more collective acceptance and collective action. So all the things that Make this nation great, I think, and make us dynamic. Also, make it hard to respond to a public health crisis in a intensive, coordinated fashion. Scott, do you th- do you think we
0: should have mask mandates everywhere, and f- and people who violate them should be fined? There was a there was an op in the Washington Post today calling for that exact thing. There are mask mandates, but there's really very little downside other than public scorn for not wearing a mask. Should people be fined or even jailed?
2: Well, I'm, I I think. It's reasonable to I think we should be implementing a mask mandate. I think there needs to be enforcement. You can give people a warning and then give them a fine. Look, we require people to wear seatbelts and we give them tickets and if they don't have a seatbelt on, we enforce that. And that's largely to protect them and lower insurance premiums. It's you you wearing a seatbelt isn't necessarily protecting other people from you. This is a situation where you're not only protecting yourself you're providing a protection to a society as a whole. I don't know why we can inf- mandate and enforce seatbelt requirements and, and people comply with it um, largely, uh, but they, there's this sort of political aversion to the masks other than for the fact that the masks got sort of pitched in a political context from the outset, unfortunately, and got equated with people's exercise of their liberty. And it's uncomfortable to wear masks. So I understand people not wanting to be told they have to wear a mask when it's 95 degrees in Phoenix. But, you know, the masks should be uh, enforced in the settings in which the masks provide protection, indoor congregate settings. You know, if you're walking on the street um, and you're you're distanced from everyone, that's not a setting where you necessarily need to enforce a mask mandate inside. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just say, Jimmy, I'm talking to a lot of CEOs, and I think you're going to see more of a, a mask mandate in the country driven by the private sector. Um, as more and more businesses require masks inside their establishments, it effectively requires people to have a mask when they go out of their home and put it on largely in the highest risk settings, which is when you're in an indoor congregate space.
0: Uh, I'm going to try to ask some more, some shorter questions, see if you can keep your answers shorter. Many of these will be from uh, uh, Twitter or, uh, you know, email. I have, have us, a lot guess. to say, Jim. Yeah, that's, that's why I made that specific reference to keeping it keeping it short. Mike, what absolutely needs to be in this next congressional um, phase four economic support bill?
3: Well, they, uh, there's a lot. But um, well, what has
0: to be there for sure?
3: Well, there's some key provisions of the CARES Act that were passed in, that was passed in March are expiring. So, address expiring provisions, including insurance benefits. We need to. Uh, 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 schools that are planning on reopening, that need money to retrofit classrooms and you know re, uh, uh, get better HVAC systems and those sorts of things. We need to provide them with that money. But general support to state and local governments are going to be critically important. Uh, the next phase of a small support program is going to be important. I mean, the good news is that Congress is talking about all the things that need to be in there. Uh, you know, Whether or not uh, Congress is going to execute is, is the question.
0: Rick, are these uh, colleges with big giant endowments gonna get away with uh, having kids, uh, college kids go to school online still charging them full tuition? Looks that way,
1: <laughs> unbelievable. You know, mostly what they're selling is access to the post-graduation job market and prestige. And, uh, you know, I mean, the idea that you're paying 40, 50, $60,000 to sit in your parents' basement and watch YouTube videos is mind blowing, but it seems to be happening
0: uh scott are we being too optimistic about vaccines it seems like they we hear the best case scenario and we assume that that should be the our baseline expectation or are or you know might we start getting might we get a vaccine you know early 2021 which seems to be the optimistic scenario
2: yeah so i'm on the board of pfizer i'll just mention that which obviously has one of the vaccines that's in advanced development right now in phase three clinical trials um, I think a, a reasonable base case is that we could have a vaccine in early 2021. Um, that's, that's an optimistic scenario, but it's not an unreasonable scenario if things go right, if the clinical trials demonstrate that the vaccines are safe and effective, if manufacturing is scaled um, and is currently being scaled, these companies are manufacturing at risk right now, but if they're able to successfully manufacture these products, you could have a situation where you have a vaccine in early 2021 that's licensed by the FDA for general use or use in in, in large select populations, maybe an older population. I think having a vaccine available before that is, um, I wouldn't say unlikely, but if it's going to be available before that, it would be available under an emergency use authorization for a very select population. So you could see a scenario where the pivotal trials read out sometime in October or November. Um, because the trials might go quick because we have so much infection around this country, they'll enroll quickly, they'll read out quickly because you'll have a lot of events in the trials. You learn that the vaccines are effective. You don't know, you don't have longer term follow-up data but you might authorize the use of the vaccines under an emergency use authorization for let's say frontline healthcare workers, maybe in the context of a large registry where you where you um, give it to healthcare workers, but you enroll them in a registry where you continue to follow them and collect safety information, as well as efficacy information. Um, that might be a path that we have. Oftentimes when you have a vaccine trial, right now these vaccine trials are 30,000 patients each. A lot of vaccine trials are 70, sometimes 80,000 patients or more, but only a portion of it is a randomized, prospectively randomized trial. The other, the other arm of the trial will be just a large prospective enrollment registry where you're just trying to gather more data, you're trying to expose more pe- people to the product to get more information about long-term safety. So you could see those like large scale registries roll out after the pivotal trials are unveiled in October, November as a way to both provide access as well as continue to collect information in advance of licensing it for general use. But getting back to your original question, just the bottom line is, I'm, I know you wanted quick answers. So I'm sorry, Jimmy, I, I forgot that part. Um, I think that in, in optimistic scenarios, you would have a vaccine licensed for general use or authorized for more widespread use in early 2021. That's, a, that's an optimistic sort of base. And, the, and, the, and then how long to get everybody uh, vaccinated? Well, I think it would go quick. I mean, it, I don't think that there's going to be a logistical problem. We'll have enough glass and and, and syringes to vaccinate people. In 2009, we were able to vaccinate people to a tri, with a trivalent flu vaccine, and in a month later, turn around and vaccinate the entire population with a monovalent uh, vaccine for H1N1. So everyone effectively got two flu vaccines that season. If we were able to do it in 2009, we're going to be capable of doing it now, especially with all the advanced planning that we've put into this. I think that the question is, how quickly would people take up the vaccine? And that's going to turn on... How effective the data is, how much confidence people have in the process, you know, how we approach it politically in terms of whether people have confidence that the process was objective and rigorous. But I think that there would be a a sort of pent up demand. I think there'd be enough people who would want to go out and get vaccinated that you'd get a sufficient number who got the vaccine that it would provide the sort of societal benefit. You don't need to vaccinate everyone. A lot of people have had coronavirus by then. So if you can get 30 40% vaccination rates that's pretty good and that probably is sufficient to sort of quell this epidemic. Uh, can I can we're... I ask, can I ask God a question? Oh yeah you just, may. I, he, I, he, maybe it was a fast
3: answer question. Uh, what kind of a signal is it when a vaccine makes it to the phase 3 trial? Does that mean that it's you know very likely that it's going to work? Does that mean that you know they don't know? Like all, all these all these vaccines that are that are at the phase three, should I should I be thinking okay, they're
2: work? Yeah, I don't think so. There's there's sort of data on what the rate of success is once something's progressed to phase three clinical trials, and and you know probably I'd, I'd have to look back, but probably a higher proportion of vaccines that have progressed into phase three clinical trials have succeeded relative to drugs, and a high proportion overall of products that get into a pivotal trial ultimately succeed. I think probably you'd have to assign lower odds in this setting, um, in part because the development programs were you know, accelerated, in part because there's a lot of unknowns about this virus, and in part because the phase one, phase two programs, for the most part, and this isn't uniform across all the sponsors, but for some of the companies, the phase one, phase two programs were smaller. And so they didn't test as many doses, they didn't test as many vaccine constructs, in an effort to try to advance these quickly. And so you'd have to impute a little bit more uncertainty going into the phase three as a result of that. Jim, that's a question you should have answered. So so you should have asked, so I asked it for you.
0: Well, I'm gonna ask Rick a question. Rick, uh, this is a question from Twitter. Uh, What about private or parochial schools that want to stay open, but they're in districts or counties where they're just doing distance learning? Will they be allowed to open their schools and have kids come in person?
1: Uh, It depends on the state. Um, it's going to be an executive power kind of statutory kind of question. Um, you know, right. It, it, it's there, cause there's two dimensions. Here. It's what the school feels comfortable doing and what families want. And there's also kind of the larger public health uh, ramifications. One of the policy pieces of all of this is folks. Sometimes there's about 35,000 private schools in the U S and folks sometimes have this picture in their mind of like the, uh, the famous ones, the St. Albans or the exiters these places that have hundreds of millions of dollars in endowments and they charge a ton of money. These are a a, a, a tiny fingernail fragment of the 35,000. The vast majority of private schools charge less per year than the local public schools spend. Uh, Public schools across the U.S. spend about $14,000 a year. Um, Most public schools, uh, most private schools generally charge tuition that's less than half of that. So these are schools that don't have endowments, that are running on pretty thin margins. If these schools don't open this fall, um, there's a huge chance that hundreds or thousands of them will be around to reopen in fall 2021. And that would be a devastating blow to these communities, to these families. So I think part of the conversation about federal education aid, as we think about the bill that Congress is debating, is it's, it's, it's really gotten framed as privates versus publics. The point is that a, a, a small fraction of the money that we're talking about putting into public education, maybe five billion a year, eight billion a year, could be a life, could be a lifesaver for hundreds or thousands of these incredibly valuable community institutions that don't have, uh, don't have the wherewithal to figure out how to use PPP that can't that, that, that won't be sufficient to see them through, but that we've really got to be thinking about what are the long-term implications for education in these communities.
0: Uh, just one or two more questions. Uh, Scott, do face shields work? What do we know? Are they effective?
2: Yeah, I I wouldn't wear a face shield in in place of a mask. The mask is definitely the most effective tool. Most of the transmission is through respiratory droplets, but you can get transmission by having respiratory droplets land on your conjunctiva, and and that's been sort of demonstrated um, in other studies. And so, you know, wearing um, sunglasses and a mask is a pretty good, um, you know, sort of, protection and so that that's typically when I was on a plane that's what I was doing wearing a mask but also wearing sunglasses um, what about a
3: full body plastic bubble
2: that's good for you Michael I, uh, I don't recommend it for most people uh last question
0: you get a mic since you know you like talking uh <laughs> explain you're not directing <laughs> the last question to Michael right we can't end that way <laughs> well then we're going to cut him off mid question that's why okay. we're doing it I'm, and I'm, I'm going to enjoy that uh could you explain the economic logic of reducing jobless bonus benefits? The uh, six hundred dollars. Well, yeah, sure. Short. So yeah.
3: The, uh, the 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 increased generosity of unemployment insurance benefits has two main effects uh, on the economy. One is to support the economy by increasing consumer spending by increasing the amount of income households have, and the other effect is uh, by Uh, uh, weakening the economy by uh, keeping people out of paid employment and on the unemployment insurance rolls. And so the question at any given time is which of those two effects is stronger? Uh, I think in the months of April, May, and June, and July, uh, the evidence strongly suggests that the former effect is stronger, that these these unemployment benefits have really helped the economy by supporting consumer spending uh, and have not slowed the economy down, by increasing uh, the unemployment rate because there, there, there are, the reason the unemployment rate is elevated is because there just aren't, aren't jobs right now to get. So if you reduce the, the generosity of the benefit, you wouldn't see people flood back to work. There are no jobs for them to flood back into. Uh, you would see a, a drop in consumer spending. Of course, the policy question facing Congress is not whether we should have had benefits over the last few months, it's whether we should continue to have them through the end of the year and uh, I think that if we were to continue to have them through the end of the year, that second effect would end up dominating. We would end up, we would end up seeing benefits that generous uh, slow the pace of the recovery uh, because they would keep people out of out of paid employment uh, uh, even as they still serve to support consumer spending. And so the question is, you know, is there a way to support consumer spending in the way that these benefits have been doing? while also not having these uh, incentives not to go to work? And the answer is yes. Uh, the debate around these benefits has, has kind of a false choice character. You know, we should be we should be trying to figure out how we can reduce disincentives to employment while also supporting vulnerable households and strengthening the safety net and making sure that the consumer spending is supported. And it's possible to do those things. Um, uh, so I'm in favor of, of uh, cutting those uh, cutting the $600 uh, pretty significantly and then putting it on a glide path to zero by the end of the year, provided that we can also find ways to, to help support uh, households and, and, and workers in the economy that don't have those uh, uh, troubling incentives.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. Uh, that's our webinar. Thanks for watching.